morning, church. <clears throat> Can you all hear me good? All right. He says young men, but I don't, these days I'm not feeling so young anymore, right? But that's why it's good to come to church because there's always going to be somebody older than you, so you can always <laughs> feel young, right? Again, my name is Brighton, for those of you who don't know me. That's my wife, Jamie, and my son, Enrico, sitting next to my mother there. I was in West Virginia is where I went when I left here for a couple of years. And praise God, I'm back. Uh, there's no place like home, you know. Uh, I miss the camaraderie, the wisdom and advice from other people and um, elders that I had grown accustomed to. And sure enough, it didn't take long for them to ask me to come back up here. <laughs> I'm not a pastor by any means. I'm not a preacher. Um, I'm not an elder. Uh, I, I don't even, I don't even claim to know the word probably as good as majority of you do. I'm just another sinner saved by grace. Amen. And I used to always ask myself, why am I always being asked to come up here and preach? Yeah, anybody who knows me, I'm not the great, greatest at communicating or conversations or speaking to people, but time and time and again, I find myself up here. <laughs> and then I finally looked at the Bible and realized that God usually either chooses those who grow up in Christ or the most broken, unworthy, inadequate, inexperienced people to share his word and do his ministry. Amen. When I figured that out, I realized then why I'm up here. Amen. I wasn't always in, I grew up in the church, but I wasn't always in the word, so that disqualifies me from those who grew up in the word, right? So that means God picks me to come up here because he knows my weaknesses. And through my weaknesses, I'm always happy to say God's strength and glory can be magnified. Amen. So next time Elder Marlin or Elder Titus comes up to you to request you to do something in church, your weaknesses are never an excuse. That is exactly what God is looking for when he asks you to do his work. Our sermon today will be coming from Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. And that is the story of the Good Samaritan. Are we all familiar with that story? I, I, I think for the most part we are. Now we've heard it time and time again, but today I'm gonna attempt to help us understand it maybe from a different perspective or to maybe relate with it a little better. I don't claim to teach anybody anything new today because I, I doubt it, but if you can grow closer to God after this sermon today, then God's work has been done. The Lord says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. See, I know, I know there's Bible scholars in here. And raise your hand if you love God. Amen. We all profess to love God. I don't think anybody in here would 
upright deny it, but do we really understand what that means? Do we understand what that even looks like? Oh, after all these years of being a Christian, have we somehow, somewhere become like the, the Pharisees that we've so, so hated for so long? Keeping the letter of the word, having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, but denying his power. Let me explain. So if you still, at this point in your Christian walk, don't think that Christ can change you, or if you haven't let him change you by now, wouldn't that be denying his power? But it goes even further than that. Denying his power is more than just denying his ability to change you but denying his ability to change others. See, when we, when we fail to share the gospel with our coworkers, our friends, family, and whoever else God puts in our uh, spheres of influence, we're denying his power. When we fail to pray for the needy because maybe Inside, we feel that it may not help. That is doubting, that is denying his power. And when I say needy, I don't mean the poor and the homeless. Anybody who needs prayer is needy. Our job is simple, really. Our job is to pray and act on that prayer. We have no part in any of the actual work that has to be done. Ellen White says, if we make earnest prayer without doubt our personal business, then the power of God is waiting for us to use. Earnest, honest prayer releases the power of God to his children. The power to heal the sick, the power to raise the dead. And even as I say those words, I know that doubt is trying to sip into our hearts. Won't even let us believe in the promises so clearly written in his word. I pray that God helps our unbelief. It's a prayer that I pray all the time that we should always pray. Because it is a fight, it is a struggle. And I'll be the first to admit it. See, the problem is we have mastered how to achieve the art of looking Christian. We have mastered the art of appearing godly. That maybe we don't even know what it even means to look, uh, to be godly. We don't even know or understand what it means to have faith in God. See, we have tried for so long to, by ourselves, 
reach that perfect image of Christianity. That somewhere along the line, the power of God left our homes, our churches, and our families. But the scariest part, church, the scariest part about playing Christian is that when you stray off the course, you won't even know that you're going the wrong way. In our minds, we become so confident because we've come such a long way, right? We've been Christians for so long. We've traveled this road for so long. We've seen these things for so long. We've come to garland faith for so long. We've walked such a long way, but the bad news is maybe you've gone the wrong way. I like to use metaphors and examples because for the simple like myself, they seem to clear things up and they make it more relatable. I think that's why Jesus also used parables, right? So I know we've all seen a cartoon or a movie sometime in our lives with the actors are on a boat maybe and they're traveling and they've been going for quite a while. They're relaxed, they're paddling and going and somehow they get distracted or they get too comfortable and they don't notice the boat veer off into a different stream or leg of the river and before they know it, the waters are moving faster. See, the devil is clever. He gets us comfortable, you know. We get so comfortable and familiar with our surroundings. They look at the trees and the waters that they've seen over and over, nothing is changing. They don't realize when they've gone off course. And then what the devil does is, he doesn't tell you you've gone off course. No, not by any means. What he does is he makes the road even easier. The waters start to move faster. You can relax, you can put the paddles back in the boat. You can sit back, look at the sky. Everything seems to be going so smoothly. I am doing great as a Christian. I'm in church every Sabbath. I look nice. I sound the part. I said happy Sabbath to everybody. I asked everybody how they're doing. I smiled. I smelled good. And I had a good week. Everybody likes me. I am on the right road, and I am doing great. This is easy. Praise God. But we don't even know that roaring waterfall that's behind us. Roaring like a devouring lion. And in the movies, the actors usually look to the side, they look to the banks, and sometimes they have little characters out there jumping up and down, pointing, trying to wave them down. And what did the characters do? They look at them, they laugh, they think something's wrong with them. They're like, what's wrong with them? Why are they jumping up and down and acting crazy? Just smile and wave, right? Just smile and wave. Happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath. As you go along your merry way. Why does that happen? 1 Corinthians verse 118. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says, Righteousness is foolish, and allow me to paraphrase a little bit, but it says righteousness is foolish to those who are going to perish. 
but is wisdom to those who are saved. So when you veer off course and people are waving you down, and in your mind you're saying that the right people are the ones that are wrong and you're right because everything is so easy, righteousness has become foolish to you and you don't even know it until it's too late. Maybe let me give another example. I don't know if we're all there yet, but I remember a few years ago, many years ago now actually, I just received my learner's permit or driver's license around that time. Me and my mother were driving home, going to Walmart, as we had done a hundred times before in old Forney, Texas. This was maybe back in between 2006 and 2008. So Forney was still relatively small, and there was a lot of two-way roads because there wasn't a lot of people. And we took a left at this stop sign as we had done a hundred times before. Many times we had become comfortable and familiar with that road that we have traveled like we all do. When you become familiar with the travel, you get in your car, you start it, you put your foot on the gas pedal, and next thing you know, you're there where you're going, right? You don't remember the journey, how you got there, because you become so comfortable and familiar with the road, right? So we took this left, going down this road that we had went down a hundred times before. A little while after, a car comes down, going in our lane, flashing their lights and honking in our lane. What's wrong with them? As we said, we looked at each other. I, asked my, I think I remember asking my mom if the lights were on. Maybe they were trying to get us to turn our lights on. Are our floodlights on? Is, uh, what are we doing wrong? Trying to fix the appearance, right? When we come to church, sometimes somebody who cares, who's on the right path, tries to point us out that we're going down the wrong path, and what is our reaction? Let me fix this by myself. Maybe I need to go buy the new suit, a new car. Maybe I need a new cologne, a new perfume. We tried to fix the lights. We checked everything. Everything was working fine. Shrugged our shoulders. I don't know what's wrong with them. A few seconds later, another car comes in our path, doing the same thing, honking their horn, flashing their lights. I don't know what's going on today. I don't know what's wrong with these people. We keep going down the same road. A few moments later, a police officer finally pulls us over to tell us that we are going down the wrong way on a one way. See, we had traveled down this road so many times that we didn't pay attention anymore to the road signs. We didn't need to. A few weeks earlier, they had changed the two-way road to a one-way road but we have become so comfortable and familiar with the path that we have walked for so long that we weren't paying attention. Fortunately, it was, we didn't end in peril or we didn't perish, but spiritually, that outcome could be very, very different. And that's why it's important, as while I'm on this topic, to come to church, all right? This is why it's important to pray for others. I say this because when you come to church, you have, like I said before, those 
Christians who by God's mercy and grace and power are still on the right path and they can recognize when you are going down the wrong way and they can come to you as a loving brother and sister and say and honk their horn and flush their lights and jump up and down and point and tell you that you're going to go off that waterfall. You're going the wrong way. But if you lock yourself in your home, in your own world, in your own atmosphere, who will be there to warn you when you're going down the wrong way? This is why prayer is important. Because like Ellen White says, when we make earnest prayer our business, when our prayers are honest, then the power of God, the power that can change any situation, that can turn any heart towards the right direction becomes ours. I know I haven't touched on the story of the Good Samaritan yet, but I'm getting there. <laughs> I just, through my preparations this um, last week, I just thought that these points are important to help us understand and better relate to the story. Some, thank you. Some of our scholars out there are already are making the connections. But for us, more slower and simple people, I will keep going. <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not a pastor or a preacher, so this sermon <laughs> is not going to go on too, too much longer. So let us go to Luke 10, verse 27. The story of the Good Samaritan, the title of the sermon. And for this story, actually, there's a version of the Bible that I like to use. It's called the Amplified Version. Now, I, do, I read the King James Version always and first. That's, uh, no, that's fundamental for us Christians. But then I go through other versions to get a clearer understanding. And Luke 10, verse 27, starts out the story. Jesus starts the story while he's talking to the young lawyer. He says, Likewise, a Levite also came down to the place and saw him and passed by. Oh, I'm on the wrong verse. Verse 27. Yes. And, and he replied, after the young lawyer asked him, What shall I do to gain eternal life? What shall I do to go on that path of righteousness? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, why did Jesus take the time to be specific this time when the young man asked him? He could have simply said, love God and love your neighbor, as he's done before. But this time, he takes the moment to include the entire faculty of the human body, of who we are. He says, love God with all your, I'm sorry, with all your heart, with all your strength, soul, and mind, right? I believe he said this because sometimes, you know, we need some reiteration. We need specific detail. We need someone to hammer it home so that way it can get through these thick skulls of ours. See, Jesus said, love God with all your heart because our emotions should always react with godly influence. 
I know we've heard it many times that we are what we listen to, watch the people that we associate with. Am I right? And some of us don't believe it, but there's things that you do on a regular basis. When it comes to your reaction, your emotional reactions, those are the things that are going to guide and direct how you react emotionally in a situation. He says, love God with all your soul because spiritually, our spiritual should always center around obedience for his word. Love God with all your strength because our physical, our strength should always be employed to doing the work that he left for us to do. And physically, if you are walking with God, if you're on the right path and you, you have the Holy Spirit and you are walking in the path of obedience, physically you are never where you're not supposed to be. He makes it simple and easy for us. If we follow him, we don't ever have to worry about, is this the right job? Why am I here? What am I doing here? He gives us purpose in that way. That's where the saying, our identity is found in Christ, comes from. When you are in Christ and you have the power of God, then you never have to worry about, why am I here? Because he puts you in the place where your physical, your strength, can make the greatest impact for his kingdom. The perfect place for your own salvation, goodness, and happiness. He says, love God with all your mind, because our mental, our thoughts, should always be dwelling on how can I love God more? And how can I show that love of God to my fellow brothers and sisters? Love, true love as we know it, is selfless and sacrificial. We all know John 15, 13. It says, there's no greater love than this than a man laid down his own life for a friend. God is always trying to teach us that love, true love is unconditional and it is sacrificial. And in the story of the Good Samaritan, he lives us a perfect example of this type of love. Am I right? But how do we love in such a manner? How do we as broken sinners love like the Good Samaritan love? How do we love like Jesus Christ loved us? See, just like the wounded man in this story, when Jesus left, he left us, our communities, our friends, families, neighbors, robbed of life. They've been stripped of hope, stripped of joy and faith by drugs, by diseases caused by unhealthy lifestyles, by news and movies, and by Satan's lies, they have been left for dead on the side of the road. People are sick, people are hopeless, and unfortunately some don't even know that Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back soon. We live in a time now, and I think it's only going to get worse, that pastors, priests, churches, organizations have all forgotten about the local communities. They're forgetting about 
our neighbors, the people that God has left for us. And unfortunately, we live in a time where maybe even the chosen people, the remnant people of God, has become too comfortable to be bothered by their cries. We have traded in the power of God for comfort and familiarities. We are so far off course in our personal and our organizational traditions that we don't even know that we are lost. Even though some of us are still out there in the communities, some of us are still up here in church preaching the word, helping the communities, but still, Lord have mercy, but still without the love for those actual people that we are preaching to or trying to help. First Corinthians 13 verse one says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, I am like a resounding symbol or gong. So you can look the part, you can smell the part, you can preach the part, you can sound the part, you can say happy Sabbath to each and every person, you can be to church every Sabbath, you can play the instruments, you can sing the most beautiful hymns, you can help every single person in the Garland community, but if you do not have love for those people in your heart, then you are just noise, is what the verse is saying. We're getting back to the story. Just need to get these ideas across, right? The first one was we've become so good at pretending to be what, Christians? That we've traded in the power of God for comfort and familiarities. The second idea now is what I just touched on, that without the power of God, we cannot love the way that God created us to love. We can't even witness in the way that will bring others back to him. All right, back to the story. Luke 10, Luke verse 10, I mean chapter 10, verse 30 through 33. Jesus replied to the young man, a man was going down from Jerusalem, walking towards Jericho, and he encountered robbers, okay? He, he was stripped, he was bitten, he was robbed. They took his clothes, his belongings, his watches, iPhones, iPads, his Apple Watch. He couldn't even tell Siri to call for help. And they left him there on the side of the road, unconcerned, leaving him half dead. Half dead doesn't mean he had the potential to come back to life, to be healthy again. Half dead as a human being, if you work in a medical field, when somebody is half dead, there is no way they're going to recover without intervention. This is not a half glass empty, half glass full type of thing. When it comes to life, when you're half dead, that means you're on your way to certain death. This man was at the end of his lifespan. 
Now, by coincidence, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw the man laying down on the side of the road, what did he do? He ignored his cries. He not only ignored him, but he made the effort. He put in the energy to walk to the other side of the road and walk by him. Likewise, the Levite also came down, saw the man, and did the same thing. He walked over to the other side of the road. But then the story gets good. Then a Samaritan coming down that same road came upon him didn't walk to the other side of the road. He came upon him and he was deeply moved with compassion. I like when I see adjectives in the Bible. That means the simple word on its own wasn't enough to get the point across. They had to add an, uh, an adjective deeply. They had to describe his compassion for us to maybe somehow relate to this person to get the feeling, the emotion that was in this Samaritan. He was deeply moved and had compassion for him. Now, in my college days, I have a lot of stories today. In my college days, I remember I went for an acceptance interview at a university. I had prepared maybe for the last month for this interview. I had studied my, my basic sciences, biology and chemistry, all the fundamental things, all the questions that they may ask me. That way I could give the appropriate response and um, prove to them that I am worthy of this position. And I arrive at the university and they sit me down and, they sit, and for my interview they put a piece of paper in front of me and they said, we want you to write an essay. And the topic was, what is the difference between sympathy and empathy? I had to throw everything I prepared for out the road. That, that was unsuspected. I was going to a school for sciences. Why would I be talking philosophy? Emotions. Now, interpretations may be different, but my understanding of the difference between empathy and sympathy was this. And I backed it up with the, with the dictionary, by the way, so I'm not just making it up. But sympathy is someone attempting to understand another person through their own perspective. Empathy, on the other hand, empathy is what the good Samaritan had. Empathy seeks not only to understand the other person, it seeks to put yourself in that person's shoes, to feel what they feel, to understand why they feel what they're feeling, why they're going through what they're, what they're going through, and how you can help. Sympathy and empathy. The Good Samaritan, I would say, had empathy on the wounded man. I'm sure when the priest walked by the man the first time, he probably knew maybe, this is just um, in my own imagination, maybe he knew the Levite was coming behind him and he was like, I can walk by him, the Levite would take care of it. The pastor saw him, he was like, I got things to do, I'm a pastor, I'll let the elder or the deacon take care of this one and went on about his merry way. Don't leave the work for someone else. 
I've been in the church for a little while now. I'm not calling anybody out, but there are times when the Holy Spirit, as sinful as we are, still speaks to us, gives us ideas, things that we should do in the church, things that we should do in the community, calls upon us personally and individually, and what do we do? We point out our weaknesses, first of all, and then we go to an elder, we go to a pastor, and we say, I had the greatest idea as I was praying last night. The Lord spoke to me and told me that us as a church or the pastors and elders need to go do this, need to go do that. Don't leave the work for someone else. That is how the wounded man stays on the side of the road. And Jesus is appealing to us today to be like the Good Samaritan, to love like he loved, to believe in his power to change you into the Christian that he created you to be, a Christian who loves with sacrificial and unconditional love. Now, I like to always make um, comparisons with any story in the Bible with the story of salvation, because I believe that is one of the ways the Bible is intended to be read. So some say that the Good Samaritan can be kind of an example of Jesus Christ. That's not too far of a, of a it's not too far-fetched, right? But instead of, no, Jesus showed empathy, am I right? But instead of putting himself in our shoes, Jesus left glory, came down to earth, and closed out himself in our humanity, in our sin. Not only did he put himself in our shoes to seek to understand why we feel the way we feel, he put himself in our positions so he could understand. So when he says that he knows, he actually knows what we're going through. Verse 34, Luke 10, verse 34, going on in the story. And when the good Samaritan went to the wounded man, he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and set him on his, on his donkey or horse or whatever he had, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. I heard a pastor say one time that, the church, God's children, we can be considered the innkeeper. Jesus brought us the communities and the suffering people that are around us. They are broken and battered with sin. But he has given us the honor, the opportunity to serve with him, to be co-laborers with Christ. The Good Samaritan in verse 35 left the innkeeper with two denarii, or two talents. Jesus, when he left us these communities, he left us with talents. He brought this wounded community to our doorsteps and gave us talents and entrusted us with those talents to help his children. But have we taken those talents and used them for ourselves. 
it's easy to condemn the innkeeper if we knew that he took the talents and went and spent them here and there for his own gain. We can condemn him easily. Oh, he shouldn't have done that. But when we flip the script and Jesus gave each and every single person in here a talent, what are we doing with those talents? Do we only pray for our own? Do we only use our beautiful singing voices to heal each other? Do we only use our knowledge of the scriptures as a source of pride? Do we only use our ability to teach only to teach our children? Do we use our gift of the health message only to better our own lives. We all know the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back soon. And we will be held accountable for the people that he left for us in our care. We will be held accountable for what we did with those talents. We will be able to stand up face to face with the Savior and reply to him confidently like Paul did. Oh, in shame will we hide from the brightness of his glory. Because we've become lost in having the appearance of godliness and chosen comfort and familiarity over the power of God. Babylon has fallen. We love that saying here in the Adventist church. Babylon has fallen. This world that we are so comfortable in, its luxuries that keep us distracted but yet we refuse to part from have already fallen. The judgment is already taking place. We are already being judged by our high priest in heaven. This world's time has been written on the wall. Our lives are already just being decided whether they'll be in the book of life or not. If you haven't already, if you haven't responded to God's calling this morning, the call is to repent. Repent and come out of her and go ye therefore. Now, in the story of the Good Samaritan, it is often said that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, now, it, was, it had a two-mile downhill stretch. Isn't that something? So in other words, it was also an easy road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was used by businessmen, and as a result, it had lots of robbers and thieves waiting to take advantage and have the opportunity with them. Ladies and gentlemen, the easy road is not always the safe road. And the hard road isn't always the dangerous one, especially when the power of God is on our side. They also believe that Jerusalem 
is where the, the Levites and priests, where they went to pray. It's like church for us, right? So they would leave home, presumably without God. They would go to church to pray and worship God and seek to receive God. But this story tells me that the Levite and the priest left without God, went to church to receive God, and left church without God. Because if they had had God, they would have had the power of God, then the power of God would have given them the ability to love and change that man's situation. This tells me that the Levite and the priests, okay, and Jesus mentioned this, went to church, prayed all day, but their prayers had to have been hypocritical. Those long, wordy, full of vocabulary prayers simply to keep up the appearance of godliness. But denying the power thereof. I'm going to leave that one where it is. I think we got that point. But then the story gets better once again. We come back to the Good Samaritan. Now, the Good Samaritan, this story tells me that he left home, okay? He wasn't going to Jerusalem. He was a businessman is what he tells us. But he left home with God. Jesus Christ left home with God to come down here with the power of God to change our situation. This story tells me that you don't go to church to receive God, but you live home with God and go to church to increase on what you've already been doing at home. You come to church to gain a greater experience of the God that you already have in your community. And you live here as a better Christian. You live here with the power of God in your hands, with the ability to love as he loved, and with the determination and desire to go show that love to your community. The Good Samaritan had that love of God because he knew 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, it was written in his heart. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The Samaritan had that true love of God, and God gave him the power to change that man's situation. And my last point here, on this road known for thieves and robbers, why didn't the thieves rob the Good Samaritan? And we've heard this before. That he was a businessman. We know that he had at least two denarii on his person. And I looked it up, two I think it was, was it in the verse? Well, two denarii is equivalent to two days' wages, right? So it could be two days' wages for himself or two days' wages for his employees. He is a businessman. Either way, he had a lot of money on him. He had oil. He had all the things necessary to heal that man. All those things makes us assume he was a very wealthy man. He looked like a wealthy man, and he wasn't afraid to hide it. So why then 
if he came upon the man that was wounded in the same place where the man got robbed, why didn't they come and rob him as well? That brought me to Psalms 91, verses 9 through 11 during my studies. And I tell you, church, you can read a verse a million times, but when it hits you, it hits you hard. Now, you might not have the same reaction I had to the verse, but I'm going to read it anyways. Psalms chapter 91, verses 9 through 11. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refugee, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil will befall you. Nor will any plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels in regards to you to protect and defend and guard you in all your way. They will lift up in their hands so that you do not even strike your foot against a stone. God protects the assets, the things he gives us, in order for us to use them to further his kingdom. So the Levite and the, and the priest, even if we said they were scared, they were never in any real danger. Because what God has called you to do, he has already provided the way. His angels have already been sent to protect your assets, to protect your well-being, to protect the ministry that he has chosen you for. So the only thing that stands between his power is you. Our job isn't hard. We are to simply pray an honest and earnest prayer and act on that prayer. And the power of God is ours waiting to be used. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Now, the, there are, I understand there are Christians in this church who are those dedicated Christians who give their all and then some every single day to further the kingdom of God. This message was for the rest of us who have been on that struggle bus for a hot minute for way too long and have made a comfortable seat on that bus. This message was for us to hopefully call us to ask God to put us back on that right path, to put us back on that path of righteousness, to accept his power by any means necessary. And if you're one of those who's not sure if you're on the right path or not, then you need to be in prayer. You are on that struggle bus with the rest of us. I don't know. Every Sabbath is different. It may be the last time God may call you. We don't know what waits for us when we leave those doors. So if God is calling on your heart today, do not ignore that call. If you haven't been baptized and God is saying, now is the time, today is the day, today is that day. The devil is waiting like a roaring lion, a roaring waterfall waiting to devour you. If you don't turn back to Christ. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and thank you 
for the power that is so readily available to us to use for your kingdom. Father, today I trust and I believe in that power to change me. I believe in that power to change all of us into the godly children that you created us to be, into the children that you know each and every one of us can be. Father, I receive that power and accept it. Forgive us of our sins and fill us with your Holy Spirit and send us into the world born anew, refreshed, revived, and desiring to love you even more and to love others even more. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.